Hey everyone, you are watching The Jacobin Show. I'm your host, Jen Pan. We, of course, are here live every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern. So if you are tuning in for the first time, welcome. If you've been watching the show from the start, welcome back. Good to see you. Uh, before we start, I just want to quickly ask everybody to hit subscribe uh, because we're actually really close to hitting 100K subscribers on The Jacobin Channel. I found out when we hit 100K, our producer, Young Kale, gets a plaque. So please hit subscribe so we can get, get Kale that plaque. Uh, also want to quickly mention on the subject of Young Kale, he is now hosting a members-only Q&A live stream every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern. So if you are one of our YouTube members, first of all, thanks for supporting us. Uh, please tune into that live stream if you want to ask Kale questions, if you want to hang out with him, if you want to tell him uh, what you would like to see on our YouTube channel. Uh, he'll, so yes, he hosts the live stream usually with a mystery guest. Last week's mystery guest was Boscar. Um, I'm, I'm not sure who it is this week, so it's truly a mystery. So you'll have to come find out. So for today's show, uh, of course, I will be speaking with uh, Jacobin contributor Anton Yeager. He is a longtime writer and researcher on populism, and he's written a new article for Jacobin, uh, which I believe it actually is for Jacobin and Tribune, called Everything is Political and No One Can Do Anything About It. We're going to be talking to him about the rise of what he calls hyperpolitics, so I'm really looking forward to that. Um, I myself will be making a few comments on the recent Supreme Court announcement. Uh, the, the Supreme Court is going to hear two cases, probably next term, that could actually spell the end of race-based affirmative action uh, for higher education in the U.S. So I'm going to be looking at some of the debate around that and more specifically covering what I think the debate misses. For now, we actually uh, have Jacobin staff writer Luke Savage here with us. He is going to be talking about the recent Democratic failure to get the voting rights bill across the line. Um, he also has a new book called The Dead Center. Love that title. Uh, Luke, welcome back. Good to see you and congrats on the new book. Uh, good to be back and thanks for having me. And uh, thanks. It's nice that after all this waiting, I can finally talk about it. It's uh it's been a few very long months. It's uh, it's it's available for pre-order, right? But when does it actually come out? Uh, I believe copies will be shipping uh, in March. But uh, yeah, you can pre-order it now from uh, Orbook's website. So on the subject of centrism and one of your beats, American liberalism, um, I, as I mentioned, I wanted to bring you on to talk about uh, the recent Democratic failure in the Senate to kind of get this voting rights bill across the line. Uh, it's interesting, right, because it kind of comes on the heels of their failure with the Build Back Better. Um, they they made what I thought was a, a pretty pretty large spectacle over bringing this voting rights bill to the floor. They, they, of course, did not do the same with Build Back Better. So I guess my first question for you is, why do you think that the Democrats decided to uh, force the vote, so to speak, on the voting rights bill? <laughs> well, I think... Uh... I think there. I think that decision can really only be seen and, and and should be seen in the context of the failure on Build Back Better. There was a very conscious decision that was made uh, to to shift messaging. In fact, this was I think pretty much explicitly how uh, Democratic leaders themselves framed it. They wanted to shift messaging 
uh, to this new priority, Build Back Better having failed. And, and, and of course, Build Back Better contained, you know, originally contained the majority of their, I mean, in some ways, the majority of their domestic policy agenda, certainly where most of the spending was contained. And um, ultimately, they couldn't even get the version of it that was less than a third of the original version. Um, they, they couldn't seem to get it done. So they made a decision to shift to this issue of voting rights. And I think they did so uh, in the full knowledge that they were not uh, going to pass uh, major voting regi- uh, voting rights legislation either. I think this mm-hmm. has to be understood as a messaging shift. The administration from the very beginning, I would argue, has not, uh, you know, has not uh, made voting rights a priority, um, even though they are clearly in, in kind of terms of narrow self-interest, um, you know, or, or just simple political opportunism, voting rights should be a should be a no brainer for the Democrats. And, um, you know, they will struggle in future elections if they don't get these bills passed even more than they're going to struggle already. Um, but they've not made this a priority. And I think the shift has to be seen um, as more of a shift in rhetoric than a, mm-hmm. a kind of serious attempt to realign legislative priorities with a view to getting something passed. Right, because it seems, at least to me, that there was never a chance that this bill would pass. Uh, Joe, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema had indicated long before that they were not going to support any kind of filibuster reform, which was key to getting the bill over the finish line. So, you know, it was it was doomed from the start in a way. And uh, that leads me to uh, something else I wanted to ask you about. You, you, you write a lot about... Um, Democrats and I suppose American liberals in general kind of invoking a perpetual state of emergency, but then offering uh, very tepid, if any, solutions to that emergency, to that kind of ongoing crisis. And that got me thinking about how in the lead up to the voting rights showdown on the Senate floor, you heard all all kinds of Democratic politicians from Joe Biden to, you know, Jamal Bowman, uh, really invoking Jim Crow, right? And and talking about how this voting rights bill is, uh, to, to not pass it would be, uh, you know, a, a, just a danger to American democracy. And perhaps there is uh, some, you know, an element of truth to that. But then I was struck by the fact that after the bill did not pass, I don't know if you saw White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki. Uh, she she gave a conference where, or I, she went on The View, I believe, and she said something like, you know, if you're sad about the bill not passing, like just this weekend go to kickboxing and, you know, have a margarita to just unwind from the stress of this bill not passing. And that weird disjunct between the, you know, it in my opinion, hyperinflated rhetoric about like the new Jim Crow or, you know, this being tantamount to Jim Crow. And then the weird, you know, aftermath where we're talking about like, just throw back a margarita. Like, I suppose the question for you is what does this spectacle, what does this pomp and circumstance tell us about who exactly the Democrats were trying to reach or appeal to with the re- this rhetoric? I mean, I think anecdotally that, um, uh, you know, that that example is a really good case study in uh, the kind of rhetoric that we see from uh, from liberals, the, the broad church of American liberals today and, and, and the broad church of Democrats we see today um, from Jen Psaki over to the left with uh, someone like Jamal Bowman. Um, I think it's, it's a really good example of um, the balance of forces in the Democratic coalition and the type of rhetoric they ultimately produce, which, as you said, is this, um, yeah, I think that's the right way to characterize it, this, uh, on the one hand, this language of kind of, that's suffused with moral urgency, um, and all the rest of it, you know, every election is the most important election of our lifetime. Michelle Obama, I think, said something to that effect a few weeks ago about the coming 
midterms. Um, but then also there's this radical disavowal of responsibility, of accountability, and almost this, uh, at times, this fantasy of political impotence, which, um, I mean, I'm a broken record on it, but I think is, is captured um, uh, beautifully is the wrong word, but in something like Aaron Sorkin's The West Wing, where, you know, that's the most wildest, uh, it's the wildest, the most unconstrained liberal fantasy you could find. And in a two-term Democratic presidency, there are no major domestic policy reforms that get passed. I mean, it's it's incredible. But uh, you know, it's I think it's important to uh, consider the uh, the background to this and and what it is this the strange kind of configuration, um, the strange balance of forces that produces um, the contradictions you've just alluded to. Um, I mean, in the case of something like voting rights. I mean, quite obviously, there's a history of, uh, I mean, voter suppression has a deep history. You know, Ari Berman, who's a reporter over at Mother Jones, who I'm quite fond of and and, and read a lot of, um, you know, he's documented this uh, very well, as of many others. You know, the deep history of um, voter suppression, uh, you know, and the kind of racialist history of voter suppression as well. Mm-hmm. So we shouldn't we shouldn't um, we shouldn't discount that. Um, but uh you know, there, there's clearly a contradiction here in how it's being talked about, which is quite, which is analogous to um, similar contradictions we saw throughout the Trump era, where one minute we'd hear that, you know, the Fourth Reich was coming to America. Um, and then the next, uh, Democratic politicians would be a, a voting to approve Trump's, you know, judicial nominees or whatever. Right. You know, there are innumerable examples of this. So what explains that uh, contradiction? I mean, I think there are a number of reasons, but I think it's best to think of the Democratic Party as a kind of political platypus. It's something that consists of many ill-fitting parts. On the one hand, it's the party of liberally minded, uh, progressive, and even left, left-wing left voters. Historically, or at least since round about the 1930s, it's also tended to be the wing of uh, America's political duopoly from which kind of popular reforms have, have sprung. Beginning especially in the 1990s or, or accelerating the 1990s, we should say, it's also been the home of a broad coalition of big business, uh, financial capital, health insurance companies, um, and also, um, and this is important, a right-leaning suburban uh, constituency, which the party leadership has been very keen to court and elevate as kind of the, the central uh, audience to, to, to which it's, it's pitching. So your, your kickboxers and margarita drinkers, perhaps? <laughs> It, absolutely, yeah. Uh, the the kick, yeah, the kickboxers and margaritas. Uh, I mean, uh, Jen Psaki could not have been any more explicit in that uh, in that quote you just mentioned. But so you know, I think the Democratic Party is often referred to as kind of a broad church. That's how people think of it, um, and that's true in a sense. But it's not a broad church. I would argue that r- really, in the sense of accommodating different ideological perspectives or different political perspectives. A lot of the constituencies, and I would argue the ones that have the greatest uh, deal of influence, are not really popular constituencies at all, or even groups that uh, that are, you know, activist coalitions, uh, nonprofits, civil rights uh, advocacy groups, whatever, um, that are seeking to represent the popular interest in some way. Um, they are private interests. Uh, they're motivated by profit, and their goal is to capture political parties and to capture the legislative process. Um, and with their very powerful lobbies and PR wings, and also, I think most importantly of all, their campaign donations, um, they tend to have the final say in many cases on what can or cannot get passed um, when either of the two parties is in power. So I think it's this, more than anything else, it's this 
kind of strange balance of forces that produces the type of rhetoric uh, that we so often see from liberal politicians, where mm-hmm. on the one hand, there's this kind of house lexicon of kind of uh, the, the language of inclusion and, and you know, social justice and, and even sometimes gesturing towards particular policy priorities. But then on the other hand, um, there's this kind of uh, fantasy of impotence, this, this near total disavowal of any responsibility to run on an agenda and then pass it. And I think that's mm-hmm. especially true when Democrats are in power. You just start yeah. to hear endlessly about uh, how they can't pass anything and there's and there's nothing they can do. And that's not an right. accident. So I, I think I want to just wrap up uh, with this question of political priorities, because I I would agree that or, you know, I, I think that probably most people watching agree that voting rights are very important, especially in the context of, as you were saying, the longer history of voter suppression in the U.S., now, that said, we do have some polls and surveys that actually show that, you know, a, a, a big part of the Democratic base, they're concerned about voting rights, but that isn't the thing that's driving them to the polls. So it was like kind of an odd thing for Democrats to kind of stake their claim on, I guess. Um, but I, I suppose the question for you is, you know, though we all agree that voting rights are important and that we de- we definitely need legislation of some kind to pass in the U.S., um, I, I'm wondering if you think that voting rights are sort of sufficient for progressive change, because that was very much the message that I heard coming out of the Democratic camp. And, uh, you know, as socialists, we obviously want to expand democracy, but but I just don't think it's just about voting rights. So I don't know if you have thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, you can look at voting rights in, or something like voting rights in two ways. I mean, I, for one, I think they are um, they are worth, I mean, they're valuable intrinsically. Small D democracy, I think, is mm-hmm. an intrinsically important principle. Um, but you have to look at them another way, too, which is you have to also see them as a means to an end. Um, you know, civil rights leaders, um, you know, like Martin Luther King, uh, al- always thought of voting rights as kind of um, the beginning of a process. Uh, you know, uh, Martin Luther King, when he spoke to the United States Senate in 1966 said it was easier to gain the right to vote because it didn't cost the nation anything. Mm-hmm. And the fact uh, is that we're dealing with issues now that will call for something of a restructuring of the architecture of American society. Uh, and that is going to cost the nation something. So mm-hmm. I think voting rights uh, without a political program attached to them that seeks to use democracy to expand, you know, uh, to, to expand democracy into, um, you know, other spheres of life um, and to, you know, pass a broadly popular agenda, um, you know, voting rights are clearly not sufficient uh, on their own. Um, and I really liked uh, the piece David Sirota wrote about this last week, which I think was actually called Democrat, uh, Voting Rights Alone Will Not Save the Democrats. And, right. where, you know, he pointed out, among other things, that um, the Democratic Party uh, asks its voters to vote for it, and it asks them to do so, uh, so that they can solve the problems that are created by the people who donate to the Democratic Party, um, right. who it simultaneously promises to enrich. So, unless voting rights are part of a, um, you know, part of a broader agenda to break fundamentally and irreversibly from that model of politics, um, they're kind of just rhetoric and they're kind of just messaging. And unfortunately, despite all the language we've heard from liberal leaders at the moment and from Democrats, um, that's in this moment uh, what they are. Well, Luke, thank you for your time. Uh, Before we let you go, do you want to say just a few words about your new book that's coming out? The Dead Center, again, great title. 
Sure. Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, it, you know, it, it will obviously uh, touch on and cover a lot of the things we've we've talked about uh, today, but also um, a lot of other things as well. Um, you know, it is uh, it tries to be, I think, an expansive argument about our about our current political moment. Um, everything that is uh, strange and unique and frustrating about it um, as well. So in addition to uh Lots of essays about prominent Democrats and why they're bad in particularly uh, niche kind of ways. Um, there, there are also essays on neoliberalism, on uh, the American media and how the punditocracy works, um, postmodernism, all kinds of fun stuff. So uh, I hope people will check it out. It is available for pre-order. You heard it here first. Uh, Luke, again, thank you so much and good to see you. A pleasure. You too. All right. So again, we will shortly be getting to Anton Yeager, who's going to be talking to us about the rise of hyperpolitics. I'll be making my comments on uh, race-based affirmative action and the upcoming Supreme Court decision. But first, we have a message from our sponsor, Verso Books. Join the Verso Book Club and get every new ebook that Verso publishes every month, as well as one to three books in the mail. All Verso Book Club members also get 50% off everything on the website. The Comrade tier is only $20 a month for your first three months, and if you join in January, you'll get these books. Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers, Accountability for Those Who Caused the Crisis by John Nichols. Britain's Empire, Resistance, Repression, and Revolt by Richard Gott, a history of the foundation of the British Empire and the forgotten story of resistance to its formation. Culture and Politics, Class, Writing, Socialism by Raymond Williams, a new collection of essays from one of the founders of cultural studies. And Imperium, Structures and Affects of Political Bodies by Frederick Lordon, an exploration of political forms drawing on Spinoza's political philosophy. Become a member today at versobooks.com. All right, those all looked great. Uh, thank you again to Verso, our sponsor. So before we get to Anton Yeager, who I'll be interviewing in a minute, I wanted to just make some brief comments about, um, as I said, the upcoming Supreme Court uh, hearing over race-based affirmative action. So earlier this week, the Supreme Court announced it would hear two cases challenging the legality of race-based affirmative action in college admissions. As commentators have noted, because conservatives now have a, a supermajority on the Supreme Court, the hearing could very well result in the end of affirmative action in higher education. Breaking news out of the Supreme Court. Let's bring in the one and only Pete Williams. Pete, what do we know? Well, the Supreme Court's just agreed to take up another blockbuster issue. This is the question of affirmative action in college admissions. The court will hear a challenge to the affirmative action program at Harvard University that was brought by a group of Asian American students. Now, the Supreme Court has looked at this question repeatedly over the past years and has typically upheld affirmative action in college admissions as long as these are not strict quotas. The Supreme Court has said that colleges and universities can use a student's race as a plus factor in admissions, provided that it's not a quota. But there are two differences now since the Supreme Court has last upheld affirmative action, and their names are Anthony Kennedy and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, both of whom upheld affirmative action and are now gone, replaced by more conservative justices who take a more jaundiced view of this. So my guess is that this is that this grant is too late to have the case argued this term. It seems likely that it'll be argued in the term that begins uh, in October. But it is a huge issue and affirmative action may be in serious trouble now that the court has agreed to look at this. 
Now, from the moment the lawsuit against Harvard was first filed in 2018, much has been made of the fact that Asian American students, rather than exclusively whites, were plaintiffs in the suit, and progressives have naturally rushed to decry these students as dupes and racists. For instance, in The New Yorker a few years ago, one professor and a Harvard graduate said of the plaintiffs, quote, why would any of you sue Harvard for doing this, for not accepting you? They reject 95% of the people. To me, I was like, oh my God, these kids are really entitled. Just this week, a columnist for The Nation and another Harvard grad tweeted in regard to the Supreme Court announcement that Asians were eager to be seen as, quote, model minorities to whites. Now, as thrilling as it may be to invoke racial stereotypes in order to defend Harvard, a private university with an endowment of more than $53 billion, I would argue that the ongoing university affirmative action battles ultimately reveal less about Asian Americans or even race in the United States than they do about the peculiar nature of higher education and so-called opportunity in our age of grotesque economic inequality. To put it another way, fixating on the racial makeup of Ivy League universities and other selective colleges, regardless of one's perspective on what that makeup should be or how the schools in question should achieve it, is a project that, by definition, focuses on a handful of hyper-elite institutions to the exclusion of larger educational and economic crises. As the professor and critic Walter Ben Michaels has noted, Comparatively few American college students attend institutions where admissions are competitive enough for affirmative action to be relevant. Or, as reporter Ben Castleman wrote in 538, according to data from the Department of Education, more than three quarters of U.S. undergraduates attend colleges that accept at least half their applicants, just 4% attend schools that accept 25% or less, and hardly any well under 1% attend schools like Harvard and Yale that accept less than 10%. What's more is that the students that attend these highly selective schools tend to come from affluent, if not flat-out wealthy, families. A few years ago, the New York Times ran a detailed breakdown of the median family income of the students that attend the top universities in the U.S. and found that students at elite colleges were even richer than researchers had previously thought. According to the report, at 38 colleges in America, including five in the Ivy League, Dartmouth, Princeton, Yale, Penn, and Brown, more students came from the top 1% of the income scale than from the entire bottom 60%. The Times also found that about 4 in 10 students from the top 0.1% attend an Ivy League or elite university elite university, which is roughly equivalent to the share of students from poor families who attend any two- or four-year college. So, in other words, the fight over so-called racial representation at Harvard is really a fight about how diverse one thinks the ruling class ought to be. That's, of course, a very exciting conversation for the media, whose members disproportionately come from elite universities themselves, but it's a concern that doesn't really seem to resonate with most of the American public. Despite the constant rhetoric that getting more underrepresented or historically marginalized groups into elite schools represents a critical battlefield in the fight for racial justice, the uneasy truth is that significant majorities of the public, including 62% of Black Americans, 65% of Hispanics, and 58% of Asians, say that race should not be a factor in college admissions decisions. 
In that same vein, in 2020, voters in Deep Blue California, which of course is the most diverse state in the country, soundly defeated a statewide affirmative action measure by double digits. Out of some of the major propositions statewide here in California, there, an effort to reinstate affirmative action has failed. That's Prop 16. It would have allowed affirmative action in government deci- hiring decisions, and it's now trailing by more than a million votes. So it's going down. KCRA 3 political reporter Mike Lurie live at the state capitol to explain why. Mike. Well, Brian, Prop 16 was very unpopular, as you mentioned, with many Californians. It would have set aside racial preferences for admission to the University of California, other public schools, and also for some state government contract work as well. So there was a lot of pushback to Prop 16, as you can imagine. That pushback came from a wide variety of ethnic groups. They told us they viewed it as a form of reverse discrimination. One of those arguing against it is Ward Connerly, who launched the original ban on affirmative action back in 1996. That was some 24 years ago. He told us today that Prop 16 would have given some people unfair preferential treatment. Preferring one group of people over another on the basis of their skin color or their race. And many of us resent that. We don't want it. And yesterday, the voters of this state said we agree with And there was also some very strong opposition to Prop 16 from a wide variety of ethnic groups, including many Asian Americans. In fact, we covered them here at the uh, state capitol many times in rallies. They said they were concerned about the perception that they are overrepresented at the University of California. And they said they were concerned that their children would not be admitted in and that could harm their chances of going to the school of their choice. This, by the way, is after advocates of Prop 16 ran this very persuasive ad comparing opponents of the ballot measure to Nazis. Proposition 16 takes on discrimination. Some women make as little as 42% of what a man makes. Voting yes on Prop 16 helps us fix that. It's supported by leaders like Kamala Harris and opposed by those who have always opposed equality. We either fall from grace or we rise. Together, Proposition 16 provides equal opportunities, leveling the playing field for all of us. Okay, so what's going on here? I suspect the American public's widespread lack of enthusiasm for race-based affirmative action in higher education is actually less about an abstract commitment to white supremacy and more about the simple fact that over 60% of Americans don't have a college degree themselves. To quote Walter Ben Michaels again, it's not surprising that, on the one hand, some relatively poor people have become skeptical of the idea that colleges become more egalitarian by seeking to admit more students of color, the idea that underlies the affirmative action theory of social justice, and it's even less surprising that rich people, including some college students themselves, remain committed to it. Now, the other issue is that even among Americans who are able to attend college, the the cost of post-secondary education in the U.S. has grown so astronomical that it's famously generated $1.7 trillion worth of student debt and has jeopardized the financial solvency of even middle-class households. Furthermore, the same economy that now demands a college degree barely even rewards it anymore. As we well know at this point, wages have been stagnant since the end of the 1970s for the majority of workers, including, yes, those with college degrees. So that's all to say that for the vast majority of Americans, there are simply bigger fish to fry than whether Harvard or Yale look like a United Colors of Benetton ad. 
And while we hear all the time from advocates of a diverse Ivy League that these elite institutions function as great pathways of upward mobility for the historically impoverished, keep in mind, again, their limited size. As reporter Ginia Belafonte once wrote, a great number of people in the pundit class believe that a more equitably balanced Harvard leads to a more equitably balanced America. But even if every spot in the Ivy League were filled by an exceptional student from a low-income family, a mere 60,000 or so American undergraduates would see their fortunes rise. Something like 6 million others would be left struggling in underfunded community colleges with typically poor rates of graduation. So as the Supreme Court inches toward an eventual ruling on race-based affirmative action, we'll no doubt continue to hear endless chatter from the media, from academics, and from the nonprofit sector about the tremendous stakes of the case for racial justice in America. But it should be obvious that this fight has nothing to do with the massive and still widening levels of inequality that continue to push the majority of Americans deeper into hardship. And unfortunately, we can only deal with that by taking on the very elites that universities like Harvard are in the business of making. So that is my two cents on that. Uh, I think it is now time to go to our second guest. He is Anton Yeager, a regular Jacobin contributor. His most recent piece, of course, is Everything is Political and No One Can Do Anything About It. Um, I believe this is in Tribune and Jacobin. And Anton, if I'm not wrong, uh, a longer version of this article is actually going to be in the upcoming print issue of Jacobin. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Good to see you, by the way. Good to see you. Glad to be here. Thanks. So uh, your article looks at the rise of what you call hyperpolitics. And uh, something that you point out in the piece is that, especially over the last few years, you know, politics has really permeated what seems like every aspect of society, right? So entertainment, pop culture, like these are now supposed to be political commentaries. Um, Brands and products are, you know, political now. Uh, How and and where you choose to consume them is political. And of course, everybody, everywhere, every time is always talking about politics. So when I was reading your piece, actually, I, I thought immediately of this one Instagram image that I saw in 2020, kind of at the height of the racial justice protests. So I want to pull it up now. It says, why the refusal to post online is often inherently racist. And this is like a completely earnest image, by the way. It's it's not like ironic. Uh, if you go to the Instagram page and flip through, like the person then explains, you know, well, it, like, if you don't post about racism, you know, you're you're not getting out of your comfort zone. And that that is a political act. So the point, of course, is that posting is political. Apparently not posting is political. Uh, I'm sure liking and commenting and sharing are also political. And I guess the question for you when it comes to sort of this explosion of hyperpolitics is how is it the case that everything is now political, but at the same time, it seems like nothing is changing? Yeah, I, I, I think there are two contrasts we really need to draw. Um, the first most intuitive contrast known to us is with the 1990s and the 2000s, which are really known as this original post-political age, in which I would say there was a stronger privatization of politics or the distinction between the public and the private became far more absolute than it was before. And politics really became something for either hobbyists or junkies. So there was a sort of professionalization of politics, 
away from these mass institutions and mass organizations that we knew from before. And to be into politics was something nerdy and almost special. So people who were politicized were almost part of a subculture. Um, we can see that this situation really doesn't apply anymore today. So in that sense, we've left behind the 1990s and the 2000s, and we're in the kind of post-political post era, which I decided to kind of hyper-political, uh, but which in many ways is political again, but not in the way either that we're used to from the 20th century. So this is the second contrast I draw is there was a time in the 50s and 60s, and I can talk about the European case here specifically, when your entire life or your entire private life was also overly politicized. So, for example, in Belgium, if you grew up in a socialist family or if you grew up in a Christian democratic family or in a liberal family, you'd go to socialist hospitals, you'd go to specific socialist schools, you'd go to red doctors, you'd read your specific red newspaper so politics would be everywhere in your lives, which seems quite similar to the hyper-political era we're used to today. I think the big difference with that 20th century situation and our current 21st century age of hyper-politics is that in that original situation, there were these big mass collective institutions that actually encased or structured um, that political engagement. So there were big institutional references for how politics pervaded uh, the private lives of people. Nowadays, politics is everywhere in our private and our public lives, but those big institutions such as parties, unions, or big associations have completely disappeared, and the 2010s haven't really resurrected them either. So weirdly enough, politics is back, but it's stranger than ever, as they say, mm -hmm. and it doesn't look anything resembling what the categories we inherited from the 20th century. Yeah, so you hinted at a kind of relationship between the prior era of post-politics and our current era of hyper-politics. Can you say a little bit more about what exactly post-politics is and how, how that kind of came about? And then how and then what led to the transition to our current age of hyper-politics? Yeah, this is obviously a big issue, so I'm trying right. to give some kind of synthesis here. I think a good way of describing post-politics is that what politics is, namely collective deliberation on what we do with the surplus we produce as a society. So how does what we do with the goods we produce actually uh, go to? That collective deliberation on that um, completely gets shut down. The institutions that usually engage in it um, either get actively destroyed, such as, for example, unions under Reagan or under Thatcher, or uh, even in France under the Mitterrand government. And at the same time, people leave those institutions or find all kinds of alternatives while technocrats basically take over the task of policy. So there's a sense that you can just leave politics to specialists and we don't actually need to collectively deliberate on what we want to do with the surplus or how we want to order our society and our economy. Um, and that basically means that either you exercise your rights as a consumer or you uh, basically retreat into a private life, but there's basically no collective deliberation on ends, mainly in the 1990s and the 2000s. Um, and as I said, that situation has clearly ended insofar as now we are like, discussing some of these collective endeavors again, but we don't really have the institutional forms or these big political institutions at our disposal with which we could maybe think out some of the solutions to some of these problems. Yeah, um, I, I want to stay on that question of the institutions because uh, you know if if everybody is doing hyper politics now, if it's if it's a mass phenomenon, um, why is that still not the same as mass politics? Yeah, good question. Um, I think one good way of describing uh, it is that the exit costs 
of so much political engagement today, and I think you can see this most clearly online, are much, much lower than anything you saw in the 20th century. Mm. So whether it is joining a party or a union, the criteria you have to fulfill for that, but also the social stigma you receive once you left some of these institutions. So, for example, to leave or to not vote for a socialist party when you came from a socialist family in Belgium was actually quite difficult to do and was almost seen as an attempt to break some some bloodline. Um, That situation has really disappeared insofar as our current mode of political interaction is extremely fleeting and impermanent which you see, for example, in the recent protest movements, in which people actually gather on this very temporary basis in the name of some extremely vague slogan, Mm -hmm. um, in the name of a morally righteous cause. But there is no distinction between members and non-members. There is no hierarchy in which certain leaders can maybe impose discipline on some of their followers. And it doesn't actually solidify itself in any durable institutions. Um, And that is a big difference from the 20th century, where the exit and entry costs of those institutions were actually much, much higher. Mm. While today, we're just constantly logging on and logging off all the time, which means that our politics is very volatile and sometimes quite energetic. But in the end, uh, it also produces a lot of smoke rather Mm -hmm. than concrete results. I'm wondering if you think there is any like good aspect to hyperpolitics mm-hmm. or like any or like everybody thinking about politics all the time, right? Because um, I, I have a feeling that you know lots of people who engage in what what you call hyperpolitics, including the various posters and Instagrammers, um, would would say that raising consciousness or raising awareness is a precondition of uh, mm-hmm. you know coming together in any kind of collective action. So, uh, you know, don't we want a more politically conscious and engaged society? Is there any upside to the proliferation of hyperpolitics? Yes, really good question. And the first thing I'd say is that I don't want to fall into the trap of a certain nostalgia for post-politics or where you want to return to that public-private distinction, which was dominant in the 1990s and 2000s, which you can certainly detect with some liberals who have this longing for what I call post-history. When Hmm. you say like the markets and the technocrats were in charge, Um, you didn't have big debates about wokeness uh, with your (laughs) uncle or (laughs) with your family at the dinner table. And like these friendship circles don't get cleaved by these immensely um, polarizing issues all the time. So partisanship or polarization was just a lot lower. I don't think we should long back for that period insofar as there was a reason why it ended and a reason why it was untenable. But what I want to say about contemporary hyperpolitics is, is that it makes very ambitious promises or it looks extremely institutionally ambitious. What do you talk about, for example, the climate marches and the attempt to organize an eco-transition in Europe or the marches for racial justice in the United States, the attempt to reckon with America's racial heritage. But the institutional results or what it has actually produced is often very, very meager. Mm -hmm. They disappoint in those terms. Um, So we have to think quite honestly exactly why it is that so much political heat is generated, but so little political results can actually be shown, whether it's the racial justice protests of the last summer, which were numerically the biggest in American history, but which in the end um, didn't mean that none of the police departments that were defunded last summer didn't get their money back this year. Or, for example, the climate marches in Europe, which have mainly empowered these technocratic bodies at the heart of the European um, Union to adopt more green rhetoric, but which in practice have not been serious about green energy policy at all in many ways. 
We have uh, sort of touched on uh, the internet and online a mm. few different times during this conversation. So I want to ask you, how much of hyperpolitics do you think is just kind of symptomatic of just this world we live in now where, you know, hundreds of millions of people are able to tweet or like share their thoughts mm. and feelings on the internet? Like how central is the internet? Yeah, again, very good question. I think any theory of our recent age of hyperpolitics or polarization, which is a sort of more liberal way of describing it, which blames everything on the internet is obviously unconvincing. Insofar as the internet has its problems, but it's obviously the expression of a sort of deeper structural problem, which we need to look at rather than say that if we crack down on abuse online or if we introduce these sort of mild censorship laws and everything will be solved, that, that's obviously utopian. I think what the internet does is that it creates this illusion that the crisis of mass politics from the 20th century could be solved in this incredibly cheap and fast way. And this was exactly the sort of democratic promise in the 2000s as to people not voting or leaving all these parties. And people say, well, yeah, but people can get pulled into politics again online. And then the Arab revolutions and the Occupy Wall Street movement afterwards seemed to fortify this idea that, well, yes, the internet is now the future of democracy in many ways. Um, and this is not after the, just after the Russiagate scandals, etc. But what we see with the internet is that it stimulates forms of political debate, which are, again, very energetic, but which don't really produce any durable results. Mm-hmm. And there's a recent study that was publicized in The Guardian as well, which actually shows a correlation between declining civic engagement and the speed of broadband in a certain area. So <laughs> there is all kinds of... Uh, objections you can make to that methodology. But I think the central intuition is that the internet pulls people out of some of those classical institutions and means that people just leave and enter uh, far more quickly. Um, And the reason people have left those institutions is obviously because they were pushed out of them. So Mm -hmm. with Thatcher's union laws, for example, it's just very clear that this was an active attempt to destroy a certain left-wing civil society. But at the same time, there's also a proliferation of these other forms of political engagement, which are completely distinct from classical parties or unions, and people just find those very attractive and cheap. Mm -hmm. I guess I would say that while this is all happening, particularly within the last few years um, across the world, and I'm just going to focus here on the U.S., of course, uh, you know, we we saw the rise of of Bernie Sanders, right? So there there does seem to be some kind of concerted effort. Um, Whether it's successful is obviously like an open question, but there does seem to be some sort of concerted effort to uh, resurrect mass politics, I guess. So I I suppose um, I suppose my question for you is like, what what are the possibilities of moving from hyperpolitics? As you say, we don't want to go back to post politics, but what are the what are the opportunities for recuperating mass politics? Yeah, the the first thing I'll say, and I think Jacobin and a host of other magazines and outlets are an example of this. Intellectually, I think the conversation has gone a lot better, mm. even though some of the parts of the conversation have gotten worse. I <laughs> I think at least on the left, there is a intellectually more animating and interesting left than there was in the 2000s. And that means that certain conversations are being had, which were just simply unimaginable and impossible 20 or even 10 years ago. And so in that sense, hyperpolitics does draw people into certain debates, which are, I think, crucial ground on which you can maybe rebuild some collective institutions. Um, and at least it also shows that there is an appetite for radical politics, or there is um, a desire on behalf of a large group of people to engage in radical political action. I think where the real difficulties begin is 
well, how would you rebuild these institutions which were destroyed at the end of the 20th century uh, when there are so many cheap alternatives or so many other things that could draw people in? And what you see, for example, with Corbyn in the UK is that this attempt to reconstruct a radical Labour Party digitally through a certain digital party actually harbors quite a lot of risks because there is just no... Uh, there was just no real sense of accountability or real, no sense of control that was there with uh, the popular Labour Party or the sort of mass Labour Party that once existed. So because you, you know, are a researcher on populism and have written, you know, at, at length about this topic um, before, I, I, I guess I want to end on the, the question of the connection between hyperpolitics and populism, because it seems mm-hmm. like there... I guess I'm just wondering if, um, you know, hyperpolitics is a symptom of the rise of populism or if hyperpolitics has somehow led to the proliferation of populism. Um, Maybe first start by uh, giving us your definition of populism, because obviously that's a kind of vague and baggy term that different people use to mean different things. Um, And then talk to us about how it connects to hyperpolitics. Yeah, well, very difficult question, and I don't want it to get too technical. Um, My definition of populism is either a historical one or a contemporary one. I think historically populism uh, was mainly represented by the American People's Party in the late 19th century, means something quite distinct from the populism we knew from the 2010s, in which you have movements which I think are best described as uh, participating in a separation between politics and policy. So... They uh, are able to mobilize certain coalitions, mainly in the name of leaders, but they don't really have a sense of how those coalitions can then enact policy on the level of the state. So populism, as I say, is an attempt to shortcut the classical mediation which happens between the society and the state, Mm -hmm. um, which was very, very prominent in 2010s precisely because uh, the crisis of 2008 made it impossible for for some of these traditional parties to enact the promises they made to their electorate. Then you had these populist challenges that arose, but I didn't really have a sense of how they were supposed to displace those traditional players. I would say that hyperpolitics is this new state of affairs which populism actually helped bring about and install in many ways. So I wouldn't blame hyperpolitics on populism, but I do think that populism facilitated the end of close politics. So questions about what we want to do collectively as a society became salient and important again, precisely because populists put them in the agenda. Um, so whatever you want to say about right-wing populists such as Trump or even Le Pen in France, uh, at least they uh, insisted that there is disagreement or discussion on some of these policy choices that can't be delegated to technocrats. Um, at the same time, populism after the 2010s and certainly after COVID seems to be mutating into a far more unpredictable uh, formation. And what we now see is this new state of hyperpolitics, which populism has helped to bring about, which I think is also distinct from it. So hyperpolitics goes mm. beyond populism um, in a certain way. I, I suppose I actually have uh, actually one last question for you, and that's how should the left deal with the excesses of hyperpolitics? Uh, because I feel like you've been like pretty judicious, but the reason why I, I shared that Instagram picture in the beginning is because like I think that there are a lot of bad things to say about hyperpolitics, and um, it's not it's not just you know Instagram liberals who indulge in this kind of uh, grandstanding. You know, like it definitely it definitely is leftists as well. So I don't know. Any advice? Yeah, it, certainly with the first uh, picture you uh, showed there, I don't think there should be any tolerance for this kind of hectoring or t- mm. this type of moralism insofar as I don't really see what the political promises of that type of political engagement are. 
Um, so I think on the left, I think for the left, we should take seriously the fact there is now a large group of people that are ready to discuss political questions again. But we should really insist that sort of moral intentions or the desire to do something politically good doesn't mean that you actually have the power or the institutional means at your disposal disposal to bring it about. Um, and I think either the climate discussion in Europe or, for example, the racial justice discussion in the United States are a perfect example of this, where people realize there are these massive injustices in society which urgently need correction or, in some ways, uh, radical overhaul. But they have very, very little sense of just how complex and how demanding some of the tasks are that these questions impose on you. So um, just by defunding police departments, for example, the question of racial inequality in the U.S. is hardly going to be solved in the long term. Um, and if you think that posting that picture online is going to solve racism, then you just have to be very honest with them and say, like, sorry, but you're deluding yourself. All right. Uh, on that note, uh, Anton, thank you so much for your time. Uh, Anton's article, again, is everything is political and no one can do anything about it. A longer version is going to be in the print issue of Jacobin. Um, oh, and it has a, a cool layout and a different title mm. from post politics to hyper politics. Uh, but for now, you can read the abbreviated version, I believe, on both Jacobin and Tribune's uh, websites. Um, so, Anton, thank you again for your time and good to see you. Yeah, good to see you. Thanks so much. Thanks. All right. I think that is pretty much it for us today. Uh, but I just want to quickly remind everybody, once again, if you are a Jacobin YouTube member, Young Kale is going to be hosting a casual Friday live stream for members, um, obviously this Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern uh, here on the channel. And we're going to have a mystery guest. So if you want to talk to Kale, uh, talk to any of us, ask questions, definitely tune in. Otherwise, we will see you next week.